Well, turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. Luke has shown us the conversion of Samaritans. Last week, the conversion of a eunuch. This week, the conversion of a violent persecutor, a Pharisee. And next time, we'll show the conversion, we'll see the conversion of the ultimate outsider, a pagan Gentile. The kingdom of the grace of God is spreading from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And one of the ways it does that is through this conversion of Saul of Tarsus. So Acts chapter 9. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. And in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. And when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem, and has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this is the Christ. Now after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and led him down through the wall in a large basket. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, and he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road, 
and that he had spoken to him, and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. And he was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out, and he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus, and disputed against the Hellenists, but they attempted to kill him. When the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. Let's pray. Father, help us to focus on your word this morning. Free our hearts from distraction. Free me from stammering lips, from any thought except how to declare your word. Help me to do that. Help us all to listen to it. Father, thank you that your son reigns and that he showed that reign, that he triumphed over Saul of Tarsus and that he's triumphed over us too. Help us to submit to his rule now by listening to what he has to say to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So where is the kingdom of God most clearly seen? Is it seen in reclaiming the culture for Christ? Is it seen in passing good laws? Is it seen in, No, it's seen in the conversion of individuals. That's where Luke takes us. This is a book about the kingdom, and we've seen conversion after conversion of individuals, of groups, and here we have another one, an extremely important one. The reign of Christ is spreading. Christ rules, and he manifests that rule in the conversion of one of his enemies, this persecutor, Saul of Tarsus. Even the most vicious hater of the church can become a brother under Christ's reign. So we start by looking at the enemy's plan. Saul, enemy, we ran into him at the end of chapter 7, standing by, keeping the clothes of those who murdered Stephen. Uh, Saul is still breathing threats and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord. This witness in Samaria, the witness to the eunuch, if he's even heard about it, hasn't changed his mind. He is still eager Not just to threaten people, not just to arrest people, but to kill people. He was an active, engaged anti-Christian. Now, we certainly are aware of the enemies of Christ today in our world, but we know that most of them are not violent enemies. They're ideological enemies. They would prefer to talk us out of believing in Jesus. They would tell us that we're stupid for believing in Jesus. But Saul takes it a step further and actually likes to stone people who believe in Jesus. What does Acts 9 tell us? Even the worst persecutor, there's hope for them. No matter who is out to get followers of Jesus, that person can be turned and saved because God reigns over enemies. So the enemy has an encounter with Christ. He's going to Damascus with letters to extradite believers from the synagogues there, back to Jerusalem for further trial and punishment. And he is knocked off something, some animal, presumably, though he could have been walking, it doesn't say for sure. He's knocked down by the potent glory of God. Now, in the 1970s, our Air Force pilots stationed on the border with the Soviet Union there in West Germany flew with an eye patch. 
so that if they were blinded by atomic explosions during the course of the mission, they would still have one good eye with which to come home. They could take off the eye patch and turn around and get out. Saul did not have an eye patch. He was not prepared, not that an eye patch would have been sufficient to filter out the light of the glory of God. He was totally blinded in both eyes by the light of Jesus who appeared to him. But notice how Christ leads. Christ doesn't lead with an accusation. Now, why are you persecuting me? That could translate into stop persecuting me, but Jesus doesn't start with the command. He starts with a question. Why are you persecuting me? That's the tenderness and mercy of the Lord who appeals to the conscience even of an evil fanatic who's hell-bent on persecuting and killing Christians. Jesus says to him, why? Why are you persecuting me? And what's the lesson? Saul, you're not just persecuting misguided sectarians. You are persecuting me. To which Saul, of course, says, who are you? And Jesus says, I am Jesus. If you don't know who I am, you will know me better very soon. I am Jesus, the same one who publicly taught all around Galilee and Judea for the last three years. That's me. And so Saul starts to shake. Well, he might. He's been blinded in both eyes. He's knocked down by the glory of God. And this is that moment of epiphany where he realizes, I'm on the wrong side of this thing. I am fighting somebody who is very supernatural and powerful. And Jesus takes charge of the conversation. Saul says, what do you want me to do? And Jesus says, go get further instructions. Not, well, Saul, I want you to think about your ways and decide whether you're going to repent. Not, Saul, I think it's time to clean up your act. But Saul, I will tell you what you're going to do. I am the boss. I am the Lord. I rule you. I control you. And that's made doubly clear by the fact that Saul stands up and he's blind and he can't eat or drink. For three days, he's publicly incapacitated. Forget going and persecuting Christians. Saul cannot even get himself down the road. He has to be led by the hand. What's the lesson? God rules persecutors. He can make guns misfire. He can change databases. He can cause fire not to burn. Locks not to open. He can distract guards. He can make guards friendly. This is what Saul found out when he was the persecutor. So Saul is in Damascus, helpless, blind, and fasting. God calls on Ananias to come and receive Saul into the church. Now, if you've read Galatians, you know that Saul, Paul, is very aggressive about this. I did not become an apostle through human means. It was not the Jerusalem apostles who wrote me in and said, you're one of us now. And that's fine, that's true. Saul did not become an apostle through human means, but he did 
and the passage emphasizes this, he did join the church through human means. Ananias needed to be there to welcome Saul into the church, to lay hands on him, to pray for him, to baptize him, and to feed him lunch. God was not going to reach down from heaven and do those things. Ananias needed to do it. Ananias was reluctant. God, don't you know who this is? You know, there are many call scenes in Scripture where the person being called says, Lord, I don't want to do it. Here are several good reasons why I'm not the one. You know what? In how many of those scenes does God say, Oh, you're right. You're not the one. Yeah, never. God will never admit that he was wrong because he's never wrong. Nor is he wrong when he says to Ananias, go get Saul. Sometimes I think there's something wrong with us. We get so tangled up. We refuse to ask God to do his part. We're allergic to prayer. But then on the other side of it, we also dislike doing our part. God doesn't shake the new believer's hand. God doesn't enact the fellowship of the body. We have to do that. God doesn't welcome people into the church and say, here's some lunch. That's on us. That was on Ananias, who did not want to do it. And God told him, no, you will do it. Go. And then God explains to him, here's why you're going to do it. Ananias, you could remind me all day long of how dangerous it would be for you to obey me. But just stop now. Because you're going to obey me. (coughs) Brothers and sisters, if your prayers consist of telling God why it would be dangerous for you to obey, you've missed the point. Well, who is that Civil War general? Sir, I am persuaded that any further display of valor on the part of my troops will bring them into collusion with the enemy. Well, yes. And that was Ananias' calling, but God says, go, he's a vessel, he's a bearer of my name, and you will show him, I will show him rather, how many things he has to suffer for my name's sake. Some commentators have accused Luke, well, Luke has been accused of all kinds of things. One of the biggest axes or sticks that he's been beat over the head with is that he's an ignoramus. Luke is making it up because what is the most important thing Paul ever did? Thirteen letters. We all know that. Paul's letters are what the New Testament is about, the core of the New Testament. And how many times does Luke mention those letters? Never. Therefore, people have said, Luke doesn't know what he's talking about. Luke is making up his portrayal of Paul. Surely if he had known about the letters, he would have said something like, right here, for instance, would be a good spot. Go, he is a chosen vessel of mine who will write 13 or 14 incredible letters that will shape the church for the rest of human history. God doesn't say that. There is no triumphalism in the portrayal here. Paul's calling is boiled down to one word, sufferer. He's just a can, a clay pot, he later calls himself, 
I'm a clay pot. I'm an earthen vessel in which lodges the name of Jesus Christ. Now he's a chosen vessel. God called him and said, Saul, it's going to be you. And inside you will be my name. Folks, this is very important. Saul, Paul, is not about Paul. If you read the letters of Paul, who are they about? They're uniformly about Jesus Christ. Sometimes he'll use the phrase, Lord Jesus Christ, three or four times in a single sentence. Even in the passages where he writes about himself, it's usually for no more than one or two verses at a time. Paul's letters are not about Paul. He doesn't tell us his age, his health, what he's having for dinner, how he feels about life. He mentions a few things here and there, including, especially in 2 Corinthians, the most personal of all his letters. But just like Bach's music is not about Bach, and Shakespeare's plays are not about Shakespeare, Paul's letters are not about Paul. And that's why they're great. There is, right, he's not Walt Whitman writing Song of Myself. Paul is not interested in writing his memoirs for us. He's interested in being that vessel. I'm just a can. I'm just a container. And what's important is not the can. What's important is the cargo, which is the name of Jesus Christ. Is that what you're about? Obviously, none of us is chosen vessels on the scale of the Apostle Paul. But nor should we say, I'm less of a clay pot than him. I'm a thicker pot, I carry less of Jesus. Something like that. If you are a chosen vessel to carry the name of Christ, which you are, if you call yourself a Christian, that means you carry the name of Christ. And therefore, what should you understand? That life is not about you. You're not about you. I'm not a Calebite. That shouldn't be the name that I carry everywhere. The point of my existence is not to bear witness to my authentically broken journey. There's nothing wrong with that in one sense. Yes, God gives each of us an authentically broken journey. But Saul, Paul, was not going to be about that. He was a vessel to bear the name of Christ in a bunch of different locations. And he does. That's what he spends the rest of Acts doing. Visiting Gentiles. Visiting kings. Arguing with Jews. That is how Paul spends the remainder of his career. And in every case... He's not there to talk about himself. He's there to talk about the name that he bears. And what that means is that he will be a sufferer. That's Paul's greatest ministry according to his original commission here in Acts 9. Bearer of the name of Christ, visitor of kings, Gentiles, and Jews, sure. But the main thing I'm going to show him is not his success in ministry. The magnificence of 14 glorious letters, if you count Hebrews. The wonder of being that apostle that the rest of the church will look to for the rest of time and say, yes, 
We have no hesitation in pinning the greatest Christian of all time label on the back of this man. And we don't. But that is not what God leads with, is it? I will show him how much he must suffer. Saul, you're a Christian now. Congratulations. Instead of imprisoning people, you get to go to jail. Instead of beating people up, you get to get beaten up. Instead of making martyrs, you get to be a martyr. That is your calling. And this ministry of suffering applies to us as well. Now, if there's something we have a hard time believing, I think it's that. That my imprisonment, my sickness, my rejection is likely to be more valuable to the kingdom than my sermons. But that seems to be what God is saying. Not, I will show him how many letters he will write for my name's sake. I will show him how much he will suffer for my name's sake. None of us is called to be the way, the truth, and the life. We're called to get to know the way, the truth, and the life, and therefore to suffer for him. The path of Jesus was marked by suffering. He was called a man of sorrows. And therefore the path of the Christian, we should not expect to be any more comfortable, any safer, any nicer, any smoother than the path that Jesus trod or that Paul trod. Get ready to suffer. So Saul is officially welcomed into the church. Ananias greets him and calls him a brother. Not enemy Saul. Not just plain Saul, but no. Brother Saul. Brother Saul, welcome to the church. Jesus sent me to give you back your sight, to fill you with the Spirit, which Ananias then proceeds to do. The scales fall from his eyes. And he stands up, gets baptized, eats lunch, and then immediately goes out to the synagogue and starts proclaiming that Jesus is the Son of God. And that starts him on the path to suffering. To this day, of course, that stands as the dividing line between Christianity and Judaism. Is Jesus the Son of God or not? Paul formerly said no, and that's why he was a persecutor. Now he says yes, and he goes to the synagogue, and he starts preaching that in the synagogues. And what's the response? Oh, they tried to kill him. In fact, it says that three times in this section. Saul gets converted, and what's the first thing that happens? Well, Saul, you were a murderer. You were breathing out threats and murder. Now the table's are turned. What did Jesus say? Those who live by the sword die by the sword. And eventually, Paul does end up getting martyred. Though Luke does not record that for us. And he proclaims Jesus as the Son of God. He proclaims Him as the Messiah. Verse 22. He proved that Jesus was God's anointed. So the Son of God, the anointed one of God... That's what Paul was about. And yes, we see him share his testimony two other times in Acts. He was not allergic to his own story. 
But the primary content of his ministry was not to tell variations of his testimony. It was to say, Jesus is God's son. Jesus is God's anointed one. The apostles took him in after he escaped the first plot against his life. He goes to Jerusalem. Barnabas introduces him to the apostles. The apostles don't make him an apostle, but the apostles recognize, yes, he is He's one of us. He belongs. He's part of the church. So he argues in Jerusalem and provokes another attempt on his life and then gets shipped off to Tarsus. Send him back home, please. And then the churches had peace. Verse 31. We'll talk about that more next week. What is Luke telling us? Jesus reigns. The existence of powerful persecutors like Saul of Tarsus is no proof that Jesus doesn't reign because Jesus can take any of them and make them a brother whenever he wants. The glory of God shown Saul was converted. So don't live in fear of persecution. Jesus controls the persecutors. And be amazed at the mercy of Christ. That he didn't say, this one has persecuted me too much. Send him to hell. No, he said, this one is mine. And he'll suffer on earth, but I'll reward him in heaven. So don't be surprised by suffering. Don't be surprised by persecution. But don't be afraid of those things either. You're a chosen vessel to carry the name of Christ. So that's what you need to be about. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for taking this enemy and turning him into a brother. Lord, we ask that you would help us to absorb the truth that we are the clay pot, that we exist to carry the name of Christ. Father, help us to do that Help us not to live for pleasure, but rather to embrace suffering, knowing that it is your good gift to us, and through our ministry of suffering, we are doing kingdom work. Father, we thank you for the labor of Paul, and we ask that you would help us to follow in his footsteps, according to our place and calling. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.